This is The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. I'm Adam. I'm Madeline. And I'm Anahita. Thank you for subscribing, and please rate us on iTunes. The Big Electron. The Big Electron. So I have cheated very badly, you see. Out in the cosmos, that can swallow entire stars. Nothing is more seductive. Yes! Are you feeling it now, Mr. Krabs? Are you feeling it? Of course you feel it. Now, what do you want to know? What I want to know is what's going on. I think it's time to blow this thing, get everybody in the stuff together. Okay, three, two, one, let's jam. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a great show for you tonight. Let's get right to it. All right, welcome to The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. I'm... I'm Madeline. I'm Anahita. <laughs> and thanks for listening. Um, today we have a great show planned for you today. Um, we have a, a very special guest. So hopefully you enjoy the show. Just a reminder that you can get in touch with us uh, on our Facebook page where we are The Big Electron. You can also reach us here on studio at 573-882-8262. Or you can contact us on via Gmail by... <laughs> Emailing. Emailing at thebigelectron.kcou at gmail.com. And if you're listening to us on our podcast, please um, subscribe, rate, and review. It really helps. Yes. So with that, um, why don't we go ahead and introduce our guest? Yes, we have, as Jackie mentioned, a very special guest with us, Dr. Kent Gates from the chemistry department here at the University of Missouri. Welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for being here. Um, so I guess we'll start by saying... Uh, what kind of research do you do? I guess uh, you would describe the research we do broadly as bioorganic chemistry or maybe medicinal chemistry or maybe nucleic acids chemistry, mm -hmm. a little bit of all those things. Well, that's really cool. So um, I guess the first question I like to ask everybody is how did you even get into science? I think that I got interested in science way back when I was uh, a little kid which was a long time ago now. <laughs> and uh, it was back when we used to send people into space. So uh, I got to see like the Apollo launches. And I vividly remember when they, they first put a man on the moon. And that was all kind of sciency and engineering. And, and uh, it was captivating. And so if you were sort of even at all interested in science, that seemed like a great thing to, to do and think about. And uh, so I just kind of knew I wanted to go in that direction and continued, I guess, taking science and math in high school, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do with it until I got into college. Well, actually it was a few years into college. So I, <laughs> I started off as an engineering major, mm -hmm. uh, which was, I think, kind of what every boy who kind of liked science did back, <laughs> back then, because you sort of knew you could get a good job and, uh, it was just kind of sciencey. So, uh, <laughs> I started off doing that and I really, I started off in electrical engineering, really did not like that at all because uh, I realized it was just kind of drawing these uh, logic diagrams, which had nothing to do with science that I was interested in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I switched to geology of all things. <laughs> oh, really? And uh, I liked that a little bit better, mm -hmm. but mainly it made me take chemistry. Ah. And so... I got into the chemistry courses and uh, I took organic chemistry 
mainly because I started dating this girl <laughs> and, uh, and she was taking organic chemistry. Mm-hmm. That wasn't part of the geology sequence, but I took it just for the heck of it because she was, and we were having fun studying together. So, uh, and then I went to my, my geology advisor and he said, I asked him, can this organic chemistry have anything to do, do with geology? And he said, no. Oh, so I, I went and changed my major that very day and became oh, a chemistry wow. major. And That's I, awesome. And I, and I married the girl. Oh, God. <laughs> That's a good end to that. It's a really great story. It's one of the first times I've heard of organic chemistry bringing people <laughs> into chemistry as opposed to being the barrier that sends them I away. I kicked them out. I might yeah. be the only person who ever took that course just for fun. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how did you specifically get interested in your research topics? And like, you know, you kind of broadly defined your research topics, but what are some of the questions that you're studying now that you just think are the most compelling? I think that, that, over the years, we, we sort of started off studying just DNA damage chemistry as it related to medicinal chemistry and, and drugs. And I still think that's very interesting, uh, trying to, a, a lot of our anti-cancer drugs are compounds that damage DNA. Mm-hmm. And, and e- even as we evolve what I think we call more modern therapies that are targeted at particular uh, uh, sort of defects that ca- per- cancers may have in, in human beings, we still tend to use what we would now call the old line uh, DNA damaging drugs, but a lot of companies have stopped uh, trying to find better ones. Hmm. And every now and then it, it, it happens by accident that people will find better drugs that are sort of the old school DNA damaging agents. And we realize, oh, there's actually still a lot that could be done in hmm. making drugs better and more selective uh, but it's it's lost a little bit of the the emphasis in the pharmaceutical industry and probably also academics as well. So I still love that uh, sort of drug-directed DNA damage chemistry. But we're also studying a lot of uh, chemistry now that is maybe relevant to just endogenous or naturally occurring damage that occurs uh, inside of, of the cells of living creatures, and including humans, and trying to understand how how that gets repaired and how that drives kind of fundamental processes like aging and, and carcinogenesis. Very cool. Yeah. The, it's a lot of topics that DNA damage is related to a lot of things that we hear about a lot of times in the news, like cancer and of mm-hmm. course aging and things like that are concerns, health concerns of ours all the time. But um, I guess if, if you could, for me, who's DNA dumb, <laughs> if you could talk about when you say DNA damage, what is really happening? That's a good question. Let's see. So I'll back up a, even a step further, maybe for anyone else who's uh, more DNA dumb than you are. <laughs> so, so DNA is, is, uh, is what we call the, the genetic blueprint of life. Every cell has to have DNA. And it's a, a polymer that's uh, basically can be viewed as just a string of letters. Um, and it turns out that there are two strands of DNA that wrap around each other. And we get this, uh, this string of letters that it is very, very long in human beings, three billion, um, three billion letters long. <laughs> mm-hmm. and in it, every cell. In every single cell. So every cell doesn't use all of it. And mm-hmm. that's sort of what make, makes each cell unique is uh, they use only a portion uh, to become a skin cell or a lung mm. cell or something like that. Um, 
but it, but it's this string of letters that that uh, allows us to kind of encode the information that we use uh, to to function and do metabolism and and each cell to be its its unique uh, function in our body. Uh, and, and so, I guess the way that we we like to think about our DNA is. Uh, as long as we're happy with the way we look or the way we function, we, we like our DNA. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so you like for it to remain intact. Mm-hmm. And, but all the time we, we may be exposed to things that damage our DNA. And those, those could be external chemicals. Those are, that's kind of maybe more what we think about as, as being exposed to agents in the environment that can attach to our DNA, the, the chemicals of our DNA damage those letters of the code and and then maybe end up causing mistakes to be made when when the the dna is is damaged and then repaired or maybe when a cell tries to copy the dna so some of those chemicals would be things like uh the well-known cigarette smoke carcinogens mm-hmm. um, there's I, I don't know how many but there are literally hundreds of molecules in cigarette smoke that can damage dna in various ways and and that's what sends people down the long road towards cancer is, you know, day by day damaging some of the letters of the code until finally something sort of spirals out of control and the, and the cells start uh, pr- copying themselves or proliferating too rapidly. So that's one place where we think about DNA damage pretty commonly is being exposed to environmental chemicals. Um, things like chromium in, in the water are also carcinogens for the same reason they damage uh, DNA and and cause mistakes to be introduced into our genetic code, but there are also endogenous endogenous or natural processes that that damage our DNA. When in essence, just sort of the price of living mm-hmm. and being an aerobic organism that, mm-hmm. that burns oxygen means that we we sort of some of the byproducts, I guess you'd say, of of that aerobic metabolism end up uh, kind of biting back on our DNA and and causing damage. And, uh, and I guess we think we don't like that generally. Um, we, there, there are probably good sides and bad sides to, to that, that process, but, uh, but mostly we think of it as bad because it causes diseases in an individual. And uh, fortunately, we have processes that will repair. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have enzymes and, and proteins that are encoded in that DNA that actually can go back and repair that DNA damage. So... That's fortunate. I think otherwise we would we would not be evolved and alive as we are. We'd be little puddles of of, of useless molecules. So, so it's not quite as bad. It's not constantly quite as bad as I'm I'm, I'm portraying. But uh, but that's sort of a, a medium short summary of of DNA damage and in, in repair. So the bad things that can happen when we have DNA damage would be either cancer, right, which is basically the cell just goes haywire and keeps dividing itself. Correct. Um, or is there anything else? Yeah, I think there's probably more things. So cancer is, is in, kind of in, in, in its essence is uh, caused by some unlucky damages in DNA. Mm-hmm. If, it, if these things occur at, at regions of the DNA that control how rapidly cells divide and s- sort of in essence, it flips a switch mm-hmm. to go into overdrive and, and the cells will start over proliferating and things go from bad to worse from there when cells mm-hmm. start dividing too rapidly. Um, 
That's one bad thing, as you say, that that can happen. I think the other is is probably just what you would categorize as uh, as generic dysfunction. If you if you begin to build up mutations or mistakes in in say the the proteins that uh, drive your cell metabolism uh-huh. and things like that, then you just kind of start to run less effectively. And okay. so uh, generic DNA damage can probably also be um, part of the aging process. And I think there's a pretty pretty well accepted theory that, that at least part of the aging process is accumulations of, of DNA damages and errors in, in our DNA that, that just cause generic cell dysfunction and eventually maybe cell senescence, which is kind of just a, a, on the kind of in the broader context of the organism, uh, a loss of tissue function. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, uh, that's what we see when we get older. Mm-hmm. Hmm. <laughs> so, um, so then what you're telling me is that your research group is working on ways to keep me young forever, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, let's see. Let's burst your bubble. I, I, I kind of wish that we were. I bet we'd get a lot of funding from somewhere oh, yeah. if, if we if we could actually make that pitch. Um, we might be working on ways to understand why we age mm-hmm. and uh, how we age, and and then. Once you understand that, then you could take a step in an interesting direction and, <laughs> and maybe understand why some people age faster than others. Mm-hmm. But I still don't think that's necessarily going to get you <laughs> a, a fix for the whole problem. Even once you, you, you can say, well, this person is perhaps not repairing their DNA damage as rapidly as somebody else. Mm-hmm. And so that's causing them to age. There's not really... A lot of of quick fixes for that at, at this point. We may get there. We 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 may be able to think about introducing uh, proteins into people's DNA that have enhanced repair properties. Mm. But I think that's uh, a little ways down the road. I, I'm not anticipating that I'm going to live forever because <laughs> I don't think we're going to get there fast enough. But uh, but maybe you. <laughs> I'm going to keep my fingers crossed. <laughs> Okay, so you mentioned um, the unlucky things that happen when we have DNA damage that happens. So what what's some of the lucky things that could happen? I mean, a lot of what we've been talking about is kind of on the organismal level, as in I have DNA damage and I get cancer. But if we're looking in the broad scope of things, it's kind of a source of genetic diversity, right? Absolutely. And and I think this is, uh, this is not noted it may be as commonly as the, as the bad sides mm-hmm. of, of DNA damage. And this is probably partly because because uh, scientists are, are selfish individuals just <laughs> like everyone else, and they're thinking, man, I'd like to live forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they think DNA damage is bad. We, we tend to think about it from the perspective of disease and, uh, and, and like cancer or, or dysfunction like aging. And we say, "Gosh, I, I just hate DNA damage." But you're right; there is a there is a much uh, longer term view and kind of a populational view that views DNA damage, at least historically and maybe for all time, as something that is 
necessary and advantageous for uh, for evolution and 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 sort of selection of of individuals with properties and features that help them survive. It's it's one of the things that has allowed human beings to evolve from from fish or mm-hmm. slime molds or <laughs> bacteria. Uh, is it's all uh, DNA damage and mutation mm-hmm. and what you could call errors being introduced into the into their genetic codes that actually turned out, as you say, to be a lucky change mm-hmm. that maybe allowed them to metabolize a different sugar uh, uh-huh. or metabolize a sugar more more effectively than some of their neighboring bacteria or slime molds, mm-hmm. and that that lucky change allowed that uh, that individual to outpace all the rest, multiply more and and uh, and and become the winner mm-hmm. and and then that's one step towards becoming a more advanced creature and then many more of those steps lead to uh, to wonderful advanced creatures like ourselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you mentioned that you study or the group uh, studies DNA damage um, and more specifically um, kind of what happens internally per se. Um, can you give us a, a specific example of you mentioned there's a lot of DNA damage out there. So what is what is the specific DNA damage that that you look at? What we've been looking at uh, a lot over the last, I guess it's probably about the last 10 years, has been the the generation of interstrand DNA crosslinks. And I, I mentioned uh, earlier that that DNA, of course, the the linear code of of DNA is is our genetic sequence, but it exists as uh, two strands of, in essence, the same code wrapped around itself. So it's kind of a, a there's a fail-safe mechanism there. We have um, the code, and I guess it's better to say a mirror image of the code wrapped around one another. And what we've been looking at are, are these interstrand crosslinks, which is basically from a chemical perspective when when those two strands get welded together and, and that's a, a particularly um, noxious type of DNA damage because everything that DNA does in a cell requires that the strands be unwound so that that sequence that linear sequence of the bases the genetic code can be read out uh, from one of the strands so if the two strands are welded together then Essentially, the DNA function is compromised in in a potentially fatal way unless it can be repaired by cells. So that's an interesting kind of DNA damage to look at because many of our anti-cancer drugs use that to kill cancer cells. Uh, And at the same time, endogenous cross-linking chemistry is thought to be potentially a strong driver in human aging. So it's a little bit like your DNA needs is like a zipper, and it, if you're trying to unwind your zipper and it gets caught, then you have to figure out what to do next, right? That's a, a, a beautiful analogy, yeah. yeah. That you, you could imagine sort of when DNA is read that it's being unzipped or at least a little bubble in the zipper is uh-huh. being created. But uh, an interstrand crosslink would be like if you'd accidentally dropped a little piece of solder onto that uh-huh. zipper and, and uh, you, you're just going to stop the, the mechanism cold. Yeah. 
So you could try to maybe cut out that little piece of the zipper and that might solve the problem. That's or you could give up entirely and just get a new pair of pants. Right. <laughs> right. And those are basically both strategies that, that cells have to cells have to sort of weigh the uh, weigh the options there. And and there are it's extremely difficult for cells to repair interstrand crosslinks uh, of this sort because both of the both sort of the uh, the genetic code and the mirror image failsafe have been compromised. And, oh, wow. That's a good point. Because normally you would be able to, if the mirror is kind of like a picture and you mess yourself up somehow, you look at your picture and say, oh, that's what was supposed exactly, to be there. Exactly. You mm. can use but the mirror image to, 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 to regenerate uh-huh. the, the proper sequence. When both strands are damaged, it's, it's, uh, uh, there's, it's almost certain that there will be errors introduced when the repair uh, is attempted. But it still needs to be done because uh-huh. the cell cannot cannot proceed without using its genetic code. So you have to wear pants. Yeah, <laughs> the cell's got to keep its pants or its zippers in, in in operation. Although you're right, in some cases, if the load of these these damages is too great, the cell really just has to say uh, it's over, and mm-hmm. and uh, and and cell death mechanisms come into play or cell senescence, which is, mm-hmm. is basically just going into a, a permanent resting state that will never, never be divided again. Okay. And, uh, and again, that when, when cells in a tissue, um, commit to sort of a, a resting state like that, then that can lead to the tissue dysfunction. Hmm. Because they're doing things but they're just not dividing? Right. Well, uh, to a certain degree, uh, cells need to divide in tissues to keep, to sustain uh-huh. the, the life of, of the tissue. And there, there, yeah. there may be a limited number of those divisions that every cell and every tissue can undergo. In other words, maybe more than one way that we can age. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if cells um, sort of go into that resting state, that is certainly one way that, that the tissue uh, kind of degrades. And if the cells die, then that's very easy to imagine that, uh, wow, I used to have a cell in, in, yeah. in my tendons or in my muscles that was ready to divide mm-hmm. and make a, a fresh, uh, brand new uh, muscle cell. And now that cell's just gone. Uh-huh. It's dead. So that, that, that's, uh, that's not good for my muscles. Uh-huh. <laughs> So uh, could you give us some examples of the crosslinks that you're studying in your research group? Uh, one, of the, one of the ones that we've been spending a lot of time on now is, is uh, a crosslink that we, we think might be a good candidate for an endogenous crosslink that's involved in aging. And I've sort of alluded to that already, but it's, it's kind of an interesting uh, situation where there's a pretty widespread belief that that these crosslinks form in our DNA and it's kind of part of the price of doing business. Mm -hmm. But people uh, have been talking about this for well over 10 years, but nobody really has any clear idea of what that crosslink might look like or what causes it to be generated. Hmm. And a few years ago, we uh, identified that crosslinks could emerge from a very common type of DNA damage that is is known to be present in in every cell uh, every day. It's called an abasic site, mm-hmm. which is where one of the letters of the gen- genetic code 
actually falls off the, the DNA. It's actually sort of attacked by water. It's pushed off maybe by water, but, uh, but that doesn't really matter. It, it, it ends up with a missing letter in the code. And uh, horrifyingly enough, this, this happens all the time wow. in, in our DNA every day. At least what? ten thousand times in what? every cell. Oh my god! Of our body. In every cell. <laughs> Fortunately, we have repair processes that will stick that base back on, and this relies on this sort of mirror image that you were uh, talking about just a moment ago. If if a if a base goes missing, then you can just look at the reflection and say, "Oh, I know what should have been there." Mm-hmm. Um, so this is happening all the time. But one of the things that we noticed, I guess just because we thought about DNA a little bit more like chemists than, mm-hmm. than, uh, than some other folks who had come before, we realized that those, the sites where the letter is missing can actually forge a crosslink in DNA. It doesn't happen all the time. It, it must not happen all the time or we would all be dead. <laughs> uh, but it happens Ooh. perhaps a, yes. low, a low percentage <laughs> of the time and, and – uh, uh, but those low percentages can be significant mm-hmm. when you're talking about a damage that really mm-hmm. just is a showstopper for the for the function of the biomolecule. So we think this this kind of crosslink is a pretty good candidate for mm. the endogenous crosslinks that might drive aging in humans and other organisms. Uh, but some of the other things that we've re- realized we can do with these crosslinks is we can use them. We can use the chemistry that we learned by thinking about these potentially endogenous crosslinks to deliberately synthesize crosslink DNA. Hmm. And that actually also is sort of a tough thing to do as a chemist. And so we've been able to kind of exploit the reactivity that we've learned about in native DNA to build unnatural crosslinks that could be used in the study of crosslink DNA and study these really complicated processes for how cells might repair those damages and, and try to try to make cells function again. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting to think about. I mean, because crosslinks sound so dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> so, but wanting to develop them just to understand them. And also, I think it's interesting that this happens in like 10,000 times in every cell every day, but it's still hard to replicate mm-hmm. in a tube um, in a controlled fashion. Mm-hmm. Well, really not, cool. the crosslink doesn't happen every 10,000 times. Oh, Okay. Thank it's you. The it's dropping the, the dropping of the the base, the, the a basic site that happens okay, okay. ten thousand times. Correct. That is correct. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> the yields of the crossings are are more, more much rare. less. Okay. Yeah, and rare. I also really like that um, the idea of coming at um, biological problems from a different viewpoint, from the chemist viewpoint, because mm-hmm. um, it creates a different, you know, it's just a different angle to go at it. So you come in with a different set skill set than a biologist would. Yeah, I think it's it's always interesting that uh, when different types of scientists approach the same problem, they'll always see it in a different way. Yeah. And, and as a result, almost always find different things. And mm-hmm. uh, sometimes that leads to arguments. I mean, people are sort of looking at the same, literally, you know, the same problem or the same object from different angles, and they'll see completely different things. And, mm-hmm. and if they're if they're not, uh, you know, thinking about it right, sometimes they'll just say, oh, this other group is completely wrong. <laughs> um, but I think it, it does allow you to see things that are different when, when you come at a problem that's maybe not, not typically, typically been one that chemists have looked at. And, uh, 
And that's kind of cool. And eventually everybody kind of gets in sync and they realize that they're, they are seeing the same problem and, and, uh, and, and that's where you make kind of big leaps forward in understanding chemistry and biology. So you mentioned that um, so you, uh, the group has identified this um, crosslink that, that comes, um, that maybe will be one of the drivers for, for aging. So assuming that uh, we still believe in, in Anahita's premise of <laughs> wanting to be, to be young forever, um, what's the next step that it would have to be taken after identifying this crosslink to kind of saying, yes, this is one of the, the drivers? of aging. Do we, do we even have the technology to, to know that? Man, that's a good question. I, I feel like I should back up just one step and make sure that I'm not, I'm not uh, making any policy arguments <laughs> that, that, that we should, that we should try to live forever or develop <laughs> technologies that would allow, would allow us to do that. Um, if I were a politician and in charge of healthcare <laughs> and, and things like that, I would I would feel like I had to think about that very deeply before I would uh, embark upon a, a program <laughs> to allow humans to live forever. Okay, so with that disclaimer, now how, now how could we do it? Um, uh, let's see. So you're, you're well, not necessarily living forever, no, but I, like I, I hear you. So you're really, you're really asking whether we could actually validate this hypothesis, right. and and that mm -hmm. is uh, it's a really good question, and it's really challenging in in part. Because a cell can't live if it has very many crosslinks in its DNA. Uh, and we sort of already covered that. And so the question then becomes, okay, so how do you find these things? Because if cells that have a lot of crosslinks in their DNA just die, then you're not going <laughs> to find yeah, a cell that has a lot of crosslinks in its DNA. Against them. So this is sort of a known... Um, it's almost, I guess, what you would call a catch-22, mm -hmm. right? That um, if these things are really so important, you'll never find them. <laughs> so it becomes really difficult, and you have to sort of look. Um, then you become a detective and have to be like, yeah, well. Yeah, you have to, or you have to sort of play tricks maybe. And, and there are some um, there are some systems where maybe you could have a better chance of, of seeing these things, Um you could first of all look, for example, in cells that don't divide very much. Uh, a cell that doesn't have to divide might be able to last longer with crosslinks in its DNA because mm -hmm. it's when the DNA is copied, it absolutely has to be pulled apart and the mirror images sort of matched up to make two new cells. So there are some, there are some cells like neurons that don't undergo uh, cell division very much. Mm -hmm. um, and so it might be more likely that you would find these crosslinks accumulated in neurons. And it also turns out that hmm. that the, this this theory of aging also kind of uh, merges or, or gets blurred together with theories of neurodegeneration. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. crosslinks in in your in the DNA of neurons are, are thought perhaps to be responsible for uh, the dysfunction of of aging neurons and and in other words neurodegeneration. So that would be one place that you could go look, and you might be able to find higher amounts in mm -hmm. those kind of cells. 
The other thing that is wonderful these days is that we can make mouse models. And this, I should say we as sort of the global uh, scientific <laughs> we, we don't really make mice in, in our DNA or sorry, in our, in our, our laboratory, mm-hmm. but other people in this world will, will make mice. And uh, they found that there are certain genes that if, if they knock them out, that the mice will develop premature premature aging mm-hmm. syndromes mm-hmm. they call progeria so it just means rapid aging and uh, some of the genes that they knock out are genes that are involved in the repair of crosslinks this is mm-hmm. one of the reasons that people believe that these crosslinks may imp- be important but those also might provide systems where you could actually go look at the dna of these pre- prematurely aging mice and say okay so if this is right, they should have higher levels of these these crosslinks than a normal mouse, mm-hmm. and uh, and maybe you can get some evidence for for what's going on deep inside the DNA of those mm-hmm. little critters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to, if you could discuss a little bit more about crosslinks and um, and cancer and chemotherapies. How uh, how can crosslinking agents be used in chemotherapy and how it's does a, that process work? It's a great question because it seems kind of, in, in some way, it seems kind of backwardsy uh, mm-hmm. against yeah. some of the things that have been saying, oh, these crosslinks are so horrible. They're, 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 they're going to kill the cells. And that is still basically true. But one of the things that we've mentioned along the way is, is that when cells replicate, mm-hmm. I guess we've mentioned maybe a few things that are relevant one is that a cancer cell is is a cell that has embarked upon a program of undergoing overly rapid copying or cell division. So it's it's making new cells essentially constantly. Maybe not true of all cancers, mm-hmm. but globally, this is is what's going on with with a cancer cell. Mm-hmm. So when a cell undergoes cell division and makes a copy of itself, it has to copy its DNA. And in order to copy its DNA, it has to pull those two strands apart right? and, and, and match up the mirror images. And so it does then make some sense that if you send in a, a drug, so this can be now a small molecule that swims inside the cell and, uh, and in, introduces one of these welds that I've been talking about between the two strands of DNA, mm-hmm. If that drug molecule welds the two strands together, then it blocks the cell division that really is what well, blocks the DNA copying and blocks the cell division that really is sort of the fundamental core of what a cancer cell is. So that's in short how a number of our anti-cancer drugs work to uh, to kill cancer cells, uh, at least stop them from div- dividing. Mm-hmm. And the only thing you're left with then is is asking the question, well, but isn't that going to happen in, in all the normal cells too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm worrying and, about. And the, the answer, unfortunately, is for the most part, yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the normal cells have you know, what, what classifies them as normal is they have not em, embarked upon a program of this rapid copying of their DNA and cell division. So normal cells, when they sustain damage of this sort, will actually enter a resting state for a while and allow themselves to repair that damage. And that, mm-hmm. that repair is difficult, but they can, they can fix it. And that's what gives you the therapeutic 
window that cancer cells will be more sensitive to those agents because they're going to copy their DNA. And, and it's actually perhaps the attempt to copy that damaged DNA that will cause the death of that cancer cell, mm-hmm. whereas a normal cell will rest and repair. And, and, and so we've got a bit of a, a therapeutic window where you can operate to selectively kill the cancer cells. But it clearly is tough. And you see the side effects from those kind of drugs. And you see them especially in cell types that undergo rapid division, mm-hmm. like uh, the cells that grow our hair mm-hmm. and the cells in our gastrointestinal tract, the lining of our gastrointestinal mm-hmm. tract. And so the that's how it works, but that also explains some of the bad things that mm-hmm. we get from those drugs. Which also is why targeted therapies would be so exciting because then you get... You know, you can still use the same agents, but they're being specifically delivered to the bad places. Absolutely. We love to be able to either, there are attempts to specifically deliver these kind of cross-linking drugs even to to Mm -hmm. specific cancer cells, but uh, that's pretty tough. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) So I I guess I'm still, so how do we see cross-linking? Can we? Like in how, science? Yeah. Like how Interesting. Do we, how do we like look at a cell and we're like, oh, there's cross-linking in this DNA? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> you know, you kind of, uh, you kind of wish you could just like, you know, get a. Take a get, picture get of get it. Really, really, really good. Right. Right? But, but as, as. Or it like turns yellow or something really <laughs> obvious. About, it, that one's cross-linked. I know that you know that we can't take pictures, <laughs> photographs of molecules. Right. But at, you could kind of get a little bit close with, with DNA because it is a, a, a macromolecule. You know, there's a lot of DNA, as far as molecules go, is, is actually pretty big in some ways. It's very long. So uh, the, one of the fun facts of that, that nucleic acid chemists and biologists always like to trot out is there's something like two meters of DNA uh, that's compacted into the nucleus of every cell. So that's actually a really long molecule, mm-hmm. yeah. but it's still really, really thin. Mm-hmm. But we can use tools like electron microscopy to actually sort of sputter that DNA onto a surface and then actually get what looks like a photograph of it. Mm. And in some indirect ways, you actually can see crosslinks in DNA like that. If, if you uh, take an electron micrograph of DNA that is undergoing replication, you'll see those little stalled regions where there's a bubble that's been opened up as the DNA is trying to be copied. And it, when it runs into a crosslink, you get uh, a stalled bubble. And mm-hmm. sometimes you even get uh, two, two uh, replication forks running into each other. You get a little X shape in that oh. DNA and you can see it in the electron micrograph. So in a way that's seeing a crosslink, but it's kind of indirect. You're not really seeing the bonds in that. So to really get um, the evidence that a crosslink is present in in the DNA, we have to sort of revert to these to to see molecules. In essence, we almost always have to revert to indirect methods mm-hmm. where we are, we're we're probing them with some kind of experiment that, uh, if we interpret it properly, we can can guess and figure out what kind of bonds are there. So, the chemists that do this sort of use a mixture of techniques like gel electrophoresis, which will, will uh, let you take these fairly big molecules and make them swim through, through these gel-like substances driven by an electromotive force. And uh, 
just looking at the way that they swim through through the gel will tell you things about their size and shape that can allow you to in, uh, infer that there's a crosslink there. And uh, if you throw a few of those techniques together, then then mm-hmm. you you come to believe that you've actually mm-hmm. characterized the system, and you can can tell there's a crosslink there. That's really cool. Yeah, I want to talk about some of the good, some more of the good things. So we discussed evolution as being a good thing of crosslinks. Um, and then also... Or DNA damage. Or DNA damage, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, more in general. To be more general, yeah. <laughs> but uh, something we were kind of discussing before this show amongst us was uh, just mortality in general. Like, we don't really want people to live forever. I personally <laughs> don't want to live forever. It would get really crowded. <laughs> Especially if you had, like, cancer or something like that. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, so so I guess I want to talk about some of the good things about DNA damage. What are some... Or is there a good thing about DNA damage? Yeah, can, can we convince you that it's good? <laughs> and well, I guess I should, I should preface this, that Dr. Gates is my research advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if, you've, if you listen to the show and crosslinks or DNA damage sounds familiar, it's because I've talked about them before. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Not as much as in depth as you have, mm-hmm. um, but we were talking earlier and in, in before the show started that you and I, you, Dr. Gates and I had this philosophical questioning of, well, what is good DNA damage? Um, and so you mentioned evolution. I mentioned mortality. Um, so that's, that's where Anahita's question yes. comes from. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, it gets pretty philosophical, but but it's still it's still very scientific. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least parts of it, uh, parts of it, the discussion are uh, whether whether you think people should or you would want to live forever. M- maybe that's not that's more philosophy than, yeah. than science, ethics, and philosophy than than it is science, and and science will only for now tell you that you can't do it whether you want mm-hmm. to or not um, <laughs> but it's a, it's a good question I mean in in terms of I guess one of the things to think about kind of scientifically in healthcare is people tend now to to speak more in terms of health span than mm-hmm. lifespan because mm-hmm. as you note who really wants to live to be 120 if you can't do anything mm-hmm. if, right if you have you know, I want neurodegeneration, be- <laughs> Alzheimer's, cancer, and you can't walk. Mm-hmm. You know what? What is there? I want to be young and healthy. Yeah. yeah so, but I, not forever. <laughs> that, that is that is where we are right now. Mm-hmm. We we don't really have the capability of of extending both lifespan and health span. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and as you say, I'm not really sure that we would want to. Evolution and and mortality are at least necessary for life as as we've known it, at least how it got us to where we are now. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a little bit of, there's evidence I read just recently that we are still evolving. Mm. Um, What I'm not sure is exactly in what ways and how, how our, our, our DNA is changing to make us different, but we we no doubt are still evolving. And of course, other organisms in, in, in nature are evolving in still a fairly natural way. Um, so yeah, I think both DNA damage and probably also death are necessary for evolution and evolution 
is life. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I guess you can't get away from it. It does have a good side, even though it's uh, we tend to pitch uh, our publications and grant proposals <laughs> more in, in thinking about the, the doom and gloom, yeah. uh, saying it's it's disease relevant mm-hmm. and, and uh, we must understand it with at least the kind of uh, the hinting that we might be able to do something about mm-hmm. it because that's what people tend to give mm-hmm. uh, money for and, and uh, gets people's <laughs> attention to, to read a paper. Hey, hey, your DNA, damn it, your DNA is falling apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, what? It's I better true. read about this. Like bad news stories <laughs> are the ones that are aired all the time. That's what makes people click on them. That's true. Yeah. That's true. So um, with that, um, since we're already on our, our philosophical ways, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we want to thank you for being on the show. And before um, closing out on this, um, or I guess to close out on the interview, um, do you have any advice for young scientists out there Um yeah. Whether it's young people interested in science or young scientists interested in your field. Anything wow, that's like that. a tough one. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think science is awesome. And, and uh, I was talking with my wife about this in the context of my daughter the other day. She's, she's pretty good at math and, and seems interested in sciencey things, but, but not to the exclusion of all else. And we were I guess my wife essentially asked me, you know, so would you tell her to go into science? It's changing a lot. Every profession is changing a lot. And all I could really say when I thought about it for a while was, I don't think science is ever going away. We're always going to need science and we're going to be doing science in some way. The way that we may do it as teams, maybe in research institutes instead of universities, it it may change but I think it'll always be there and it'll always be doing exciting things. So I think science is cool. I would tell a young person, do science <laughs> if you think it's exciting mm-hmm. and if you love it. You got to love what you're doing because anything like this is a lot of hard work. Uh, so you really have to love it. But but if you if you think it's cool, you should go for it. That's about all I could say. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us. Dr. Kent Gates from the Department of Chemistry here at the University of Missouri. We'll be back after a short break. This is The Big Electron. I'm Jackie. I'm Adam. I'm Madeline. And I'm Anahita. Thank you for subscribing, and please rate us on iTunes. All right, welcome back to The Big Electron. Thanks for listening. Um, yeah, thanks. A shout-out to my mother for joining us <laughs> this week, unlike last week. <laughs> Gee. <laughs> Thank you for listening. <laughs> to all the parents. <laughs> to all the parents. Because they're probably the only ones. Though maybe the the Gates's group is is probably listening to us. Um, so, thanks thanks for listening. Um, so we were talking about crossings, and Dr. Gates mentioned briefly about briefly about um, crossings that are that are uh, or let me backtrack um, chemotherapy drugs yes. that are used. Um, or that their mechanism of action is by forming crosslinks. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is one particular drug that is that is used um, in chemotherapy uh, that it's, or, or I guess generally, um, it's this this thing called nitrogen mustards. And, and you can Google that. Um, and, and basically, um, they form bonds and they form um, interstrand DNA crosslinks and that's how, that's how the cancer cells get, get killed. But okay. they discovered nitrogen mustards on a very 
different pathway, not not as you would expect. Of, not a drug discovery. Not a drug discovery. Not a you know, scientific, a, a drug company yeah. specifically looking for. It wasn't like scientists sat down and said, "Okay, we're going to develop this thing. Let's uh-huh. scan everything we can." We can't. Right. It it came actually from the World War. Okay. World War Two specifically. Um, hmm. Because war is not where I would have expected <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> chemotherapy to come from. Uh, they, the uh, unfortunately, nitrogen mustards are if someone really bad gets their hand on some of them, they can also be deployed as chemical warfare agents. Oh. Uh, because again, they can form crossing in our DNA and kills. So this is wow. mustard as in mustard gas? As in mustard gas, that's correct. Um, so during World War II, a lot of, uh, you know, people, well, sulfur, uh, mustard gas was, was used in World War I. Um, okay. And then when World War II came in, people were like, okay, let's, let's try to see how, how we can kind of modify it and make it more. Wait, can we talk about how diabolical it is <laughs> to really attack crazy. someone on the genetic, <laughs> like, <laughs> in their DNA? <laughs> Unfortunately, I think that's going to happen. Yeah. Because now we know the genome. Yeah, that's true. And if we start screening for, you know, trying to see if you're predisposed to a genetic genetic disease and what if your genetic code gets leaked. Yeah. As you know, it, it it's then, a knowledge is power kind of situation. Yeah, it's it's the same thing as your email getting leaked or your social security number or mm-hmm. your credit card number. Now people will have your genetic code and hmm. wow. they can really harm you. Um, so we definitely need to <laughs> wait. So back <laughs> to mustard ba- gas. Back, back to <laughs> mustard <laughs> gas. That's that's another that's a topic for another day. <laughs> so back to mustard gas. So so people were were studying this and they were trying to see like okay well. Can can we make better ones or whatever? And then they were like, well, no. And so um, during World War II, uh, professors in the Yale School of Medicine were, were studying nitrogen mustards um, for, for, for whatever purposes. Um, and during, during the release of... Uh, um, during World War II, so they were studying this for, for treatment of lymphoma, and this was in December of 1942. At the same time, um, it, the, an, an, accident, an incident happened in Italy, and so this led to the release of mustard gas that affected several soldiers and, and civilians. And what they found after they studied the, the soldiers and the civilians that were affected by this, they found that there was a decreased number of lymphocytes. Um, which then, um, because of after World War II happened, after World War II was over, um, this Italy inc- incident and the Yale group, um, they kind of convert and they were like, oh, wait, they can actually like do something for, for cancer therapy, hmm. um, in this case for lymphoma. Um, and so that's actually how they started to develop uh, this family of... Uh, of compounds, um, mm-hmm. nitrogen mustards that are now used for um, chemotherapy. Very cool. And, and they're still used. Uh, some of them are still used in, in the clinic. 
That is a much better use of yeah. these chemicals, I think. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's a really cool historical science piece. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, so I have something pretty brand spanking new to share. Mm. Um, pretty opposite. So actually, um, our guest was talking about how I don't think I want to live forever. Um, and I'm not sure that we should be pursuing this. Well, someone is. And um, yeah, there's a Seattle-based biotech. I thought Michael Jackson died. <laughs> called, um, this, this company is called BioViva. And their CEO, her name's Elizabeth, Elizabeth Parrish, um, decided that she was going to be the first patient to receive their newest, um, it's not really a therapy because it's definitely not approved, um, but they have this, this therapy under development where it's a gene therapy and um, they actually use a virus to deliver a gene which um, mm, helps your cells reproduce faithfully. So when you have DNA replication, um, you have this big long long string like we've been talking about. And every time you replicate, the ends get a little bit shorter and a little bit shorter every time. Um, and those are called telomeres. And as they get shorter, we think that that might be part of the aging process. Mm-hmm. And so there's a an enzyme, which is just, you know a protein that does things. And this enzyme is responsible for when um, those telomeres get shorter, it makes them longer again. So that's all it does. And um, so this woman, Elizabeth Parrish, decided to fly to another country to avoid U.S. FDA regulations. Because that sounds safe. (laughs) (laughs) And just inject herself with this novel um, therapy. So she developed this... uh, her company quote, did, yeah. Her company wow. developed this, this quote, therapy, but she couldn't administer it here. Uh-uh. So she took that thing with her to another country, inserted there, you yep, know, and then like, she flew back. Yep. If your company's going to develop something, that's really the, the way to show that you trust your company. Yeah, <laughs> and that's part of her point is that, mm-hmm. hey, this is going to work. I'll show it. I'll show it on me. Wow. Um, and so... This is an anti-aging, quote-unquote, therapy. Um, and what they have shown is that the those telomeres, the end of her DNA, mm-hmm. is actually longer. So this happened um, last September. Wow. And as of March, they were, you know, a little bit longer, which is so interesting. Still a sample size of one. Yes. But an it, interesting. It did something. Yeah. But yeah, people are still really mad at her. Oh, wow. <laughs> I can imagine. It just, I mean... I wouldn't. If the FDA is like, you need to go to another country, oh, that no. wouldn't be my first. No, <laughs> like, no, no. Okay. The FDA would never say you need to do a, go to yeah. another country. They would say, no, you may not. Yeah, they would say, no, you may <laughs> and not. And right. this is just your way of saying, yeah. I'm going to do it yeah. anyway. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so and, and it'll be pretty interesting. Hopefully things turn out well, mm-hmm. because if not, that has the potential to stall the field of gene therapy. Yeah. Um, a lot of the research that people are trying to do responsibly in a stepwise manner without bypassing the FDA. But um, so, yeah, government regulations. Yeah, they're there for a reason. So uh, so hopefully it goes well. I don't know. Yeah. Well, hopefully we hear we hear good things about it on the news. Yeah, that's a really good point that a negative result from this, something like catastrophic happening to her. Which is bad for her. Which 
is yeah. bad for her, but it also impacts any group doing research this on that. A bad effect on her would affect every other research mm-hmm. group in that field. Yeah. Because of the sheer publicity. And your point about this being an N of one means that any positive effect is very unlikely to have a positive effect right. on mm-hmm. the field. But a because negative, we don't believe it yet, but right. a negative effect could be really bad. Could be really bad. Which, again, as you mentioned, there's a lot of interest in, in gene therapy. Mm-hmm. And I think we've talked about it on the show. Mm-hmm. We've definitely talked about at least HIV treatment um, with yep. gene therapy. Or when we talked about uh, rare disease day, yep. um, a lot of gene therapy is being done that way. Which seem to be seem to be progressing in, in a good direction. But if, if this goes bad then yep. bad news who, for the field. bad news for everyone mm-hmm. and, and it's you know it's it's very unfortunate for for the, all the other advancements that that are on um on other areas of of this field so hopefully hopefully she lives yep yeah. keep your fingers crossed hopefully yeah. no cancer hopefully. Uh, right or if, or or if something bad happens it's not something that that catalyzes on on installment of, yeah. of the gene therapy field so uh with that we're going to close on our show thank you for listening and again if you are listening to us on the podcast please rate us it helps a lot have a great evening and we'll see you here next week